Right now we're going to pray. So would you join me as I go to the Father? God, we come to you this morning like a bride walking down the aisle to their groom. And our focus, our, our love, and our adoration is on you and your unfathomable goodness to us. And more than anything in this world, we long to see your glory fill the earth. We thank you that we can come before your throne with confidence that you hear us and you desire to answer us. Thank you that we can come only because of Jesus Christ. He was worthy because of Jesus conquering sin and death to give us now access to you, Father. Father, we look out to the world and we pray for the country of Australia this morning. And this country has seen growth in churches in the last hundred years and with 70% start stating that they're Christians, but of those 70%, only 10 regularly attend a church. So God, we ask that you would bring a revival to the land of Australia. We also pray for the half million indigenous people who have yet to hear the gospel in this country. Would you send missionaries into their tribes, into their areas, to translate the word into their spoken tongue, that they would see and understand and hear the gospel. We pray for their prime minister, Scott Morrison, and we ask you give wisdom to him as he navigates the reopening of the country with the spread of COVID and all the details that they're facing. Give him grace as he leads his country. God, we also think of the country of Fiji and the work of many years ago to plant churches there. We ask that you would continue to be faithful, that you'd raise up people to take the gospel to the Indians of Fiji, the largest non-Christian community in the Pacific, that you would grant access to those that bring the gospel, that they would be able to have boldness to share the hope they have in Christ. We do pray also for their president, Dujoya Kanrote. We pray that you would give him wisdom to govern well. May he be led by your spirit to do what is right for the people and less about his power to rule. God, you tell us that we are to pray for those in authority, and so we will this morning. We think of those who have a large influence in our culture. We pray for the media. There are many in our midst that spend time, more time watching or reading the media than, and thus being led by them. And the media has a high authority over our lives with so many, even in our midst here this morning. And God, we ask that you would be able to develop discernment in who we trust and how we consume media. And I do pray for truth to rule in our news and our media, not sensationalism. We pray for clarity and compassion for those that share the news. We pray that honesty and grace would rule our news channels instead of gossip and lies. And God, for those serving in politics, we ask that you would be able to bring both sides of the political arena, Republican or Democrat, together to find answers and how best to serve the people that elected them. May they understand that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We ask that you would humble those in authority. We pray that they would call upon you for their wisdom and strength. We do pray for protection and for understanding for our governor, Jay Inslee, and for our president, Joe Biden. May they be confronted with the truth of eternity this week. Would you send a messenger in their midst to share the gospel with them? Give them hope beyond this world. Now we do thank you also for all the local churches in our area that you are using and working in 
churches that love you and preach your word each week. And this morning we pray for Summit Christian Fellowship in Tacoma. And we thank you for their faithfulness to this church family. And we ask for wisdom, their church body, as they reach out, as they navigate ministry now into their neighborhoods, as they take the gospel of Jesus to their friends and to their family. Give them peace and strength as a church to continue to serve you faithfully. We pray for their pastors, Ben Sandsburn and Ryan Beardsley, and for their lay elders, Ryan Knight and Josh Breffel and Craig Black and Michael Sandberg. Give them insight and patience as they shepherd the flock. May you be glorified in their midst this morning. And Father, we come behalf now in our own church family. You've brought us here this morning to, to worship, to lay aside ourselves, our rights, our temptations, our mistrust and fear, and we, we come to, to meet with you this morning. You came to Israel's temple in a cloud for sinful people cannot see you and live. You came to Moses in a fire for sinful people cannot see you and live. You came to Ezekiel in a strange vision for sinful people cannot see you and live. And you came to us in Christ so sinful people could see and now live. And Jesus, you've been so good to, and faithful to us. We feel like children in a, in a battleground, so quick to run away and cower in fear. But you never leave us. You never shame us or reject us or scowl at us. How can you be so loving toward us when we've been so fickle towards you? There's no way to account for your faithfulness to us other than enduring love. You love your people. And you're faithful to your people. And who are we to be objects of your love? What have we done to deserve it? You can only think of the things that we've done not to deserve it. But you have none of that. So Lord, we pray that you would unite our hearts in love. Let everything that we do as a church be done in love. Fill this church, this family with love. Make it so that our love for each other is so loyal and real and heartfelt and true. Even when one of us is at our very worst, make the rest of us at our very best in our love for them. Help us to love each other with our words and our actions and how we organize our lives and how we spend our time and our money. Help us to not think of this church as an event, but a people that we're committed to, that we're committed to spend time with, to pray for, to encourage, to endure with, and to love. Give us a love, God, that hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. God, I ask that the children that grow up attending this, this gathering would see a bunch of adult members who truly love each other that they would grow up here without any doubt that every member loves them. Let our love displayed for each other be like a magnet to Jesus so that when they see our mutual love for each other and feel our authentic love for them, they find themselves drawn to Jesus, the lover of our souls. And so we ask that you would save every child that attends this gathering. We do love them and want so much for every one of them to love you and to, to serve you. So don't hold back your grace from any of them. And don't stop us from speaking the gospel to them and to our families and our neighbors and our coworkers.
We seem to love sharing when we have good news. We love to talk about how things are going well. Help us to talk about the best news in the world, that Jesus died for us. I pray that you would make all of us gospel gossips and all of life. And now, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word. We are not interested in gathering facts about you. We want to meet with you, the Lord of the universe. So, Holy Spirit, please attend to the preaching of your word now. Help our brother Chris Short to depend upon you to make the text clear to us. Put words into his mouth so that we can hear what you want us to do and to think and to feel. Make our hearts like soft clay in your loving hands. Help us not to try to make ourselves a vase if you desire to shape us as in, into a pot. Make us pliable, lumps, ready to be made into your image, not ours. We ask that you would purge us of every evil thought and selfish distraction and plaguing worry and settle our minds on you this morning. Bring us into conformity with your truth, we plead this morning. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. Amen. Friends, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning. It's Chris Short, and I met him and his wife Kate a year ago, just over a year ago in Portland. We were down there for one of the Nine Marks conferences and sat across the table over, over breakfast and just shared numbers and got to know each other, and so it's turned into a friendship this last year, and we're excited for that. They are members at Hinson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon, and his wife Kate is here, and their two daughters are here, and so we're excited to, to welcome into our church, and I'm excited and thankful for this brother and thankful for his ministry and look forward to sitting under the preaching of his words. So Chris, why don't you come and preach this morning? And why don't you give him a warm welcome? Well, good morning. It is a joy and a humble honor to be here. Uh, to open the Word of God with the people of God uh, this morning here at Edgewood Bible Church. Uh, it has been a wonderful weekend already, and I'm so thankful for our family's time here already. We love stories about new beginnings, don't we? Like the story of Rocky Balboa, my dad's favorite, who starts as a street shark, but gets a new beginning as a pro boxer. Or Eliza from My Fair Lady, starts as a street flower seller and gets a new beginning, ends up as an upper class aristocrat. Or Aladdin, one of my children's favorite, who starts as a street boy, but gets a new beginning as Sultan. We love stories like these. We love stories of fresh starts and reinvention because we have beginnings and new beginnings stamped into us by our creator God, along with everything that comes with them, anticipation and fulfillment, expectation and resolve, hope and consummation. But what if we're talking about the God of new beginnings? 
What if we're talking about the fresh starts that we find in his word? What if we're talking about one of the greatest new beginnings of all time? In all of history, the day that King Jesus fulfilled his promise and created a new people, a church, his gathering. So if you have your Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. It's the first book that comes after the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We'll be living in this chapter this morning, so you'll be helped to keep it open uh, as, we, as we work through it. We'll follow along as I read through the first 13 verses. This is the good and profitable word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome? Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians were here telling in their own languages, in their own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. Well, let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we humbly ask now that you would open our eyes and ears, and ears to see the truth of your word, turn the lights on in our dim minds and hearts, that we may see your word clearly today. Tune our hearts as we just sung to sing your praise. Fill us with your grace. May we not just be informed this morning by your word, but may we be transformed by your word this day. And may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. It's in the name of the Son that we all pray. Amen. Well, before we work through these verses, these verse 13 and the rest of the chapter this morning, let me invite you to step into the greater big picture of Acts for a, mom for a moment. This book is commonly called Acts of the Apostles, but it is really the Acts of Christ through the Apostles. Because this book from chapter 1 to chapter 28 is all about Christ's 
ongoing work. And how his kingdom of light, even after he has ascended, continues to break into this kingdom of darkness as the gospel of Jesus goes out to the ends of the earth. And we'll see the way that Luke, under the inspiration, tells the story of Christ's ongoing work is like watching a film in IMAX. I know theaters are a thing of the past, but in IMAX, where scene after scene after scene, we watch the kingdom of King Jesus expand as his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so that's the, that's the big picture. So now focusing in here on Acts chapter two, if you're taking notes this morning, here is, here's the big idea, the main point of the chapter. It's this, the king's gift and gospel create the king's gathering. The king's gift and gospel create the king's gathering. And flowing from this point, here's the outline for today. We're going to look at the king's gift here in verses 1 through 13. We're going to look at the king's gospel in verses 14 through 36. And then we're going to look at the king's gathering in 37 through 47. Okay, so point one, the king's gift. As we read a moment ago, the spirit through the hand of Luke takes us this morning to a room in the city of Jerusalem. And we see that all the people are there together in one place. And all here are the 120 mentioned back in Acts chapter 1 made up of the apostles and other followers of Jesus. And they are waiting, anticipating the arrival of the king's gift. And I want us to notice in these verses, verses 1 through 13, that we see three great phenomena happening here. We see the phenomena of sound, of sight, and then of speech. As the gift, the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost. So first, there is a sound, as we we read, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. When I read this, I imagine the sound of what it sounds like to be in the Pacific Northwest Pines. That wind as the song moves, the song of, of God's creation moves through the pines. And this imagery is meant to take us back to Genesis chapter one, where we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the waters. And then later we read of God breathing life into man by the spirit, the Ruach, the very wind and breath of God. See, God has always been a God of new beginnings, hasn't he? And Luke wants us to see that the Spirit's arrival here is the beginning of just that. He's bringing new life, new creation. Well, pushing further into the the text, we also see the phenomena of sight. As the promised Spirit fills the room and rests on them in tongues of fire. And it says that the Spirit fills them, signifying that the very presence of God is not only with them and upon them, but is also in them. And friends, this is huge for the same God that came down in Christ Jesus 
is here coming down once again to meet his people, filling his people with his spirit. This is our God, the one who comes down, who, who meets us where we are in our, in our fears, in our failures, in our pain, by pure and sovereign grace. Isn't he good? Well, then we see the third phenomena, the phenomena of speech. The apostles begin to speak in other tongues. And that word there for tongues is the same word for languages. So there, here, there are not unintelligible sounds declared in an angelic dialect. No, these are words, clear words in multiple languages. And then we read on that the a multitude of devout Jews, proselytes, which is another word for Jewish converts, and others from every nation under heaven, including Gentiles, ranging from Parthians all the way down to Arabians there in verse 11, respond to the sound of the Spirit's arrival. And the language of the apostles, and they're, they're astonished. They're amazed at what's happening as they hear in verse 11, the mighty works of God in their own native languages. This is an incredible scene. And I want us to catch two big things that are happening here. First, this scene, this happening is a fulfillment of Acts chapter one, verse eight, where we see a declaration made to the disciples by Christ before he ascends. And he says this, you will receive power of the whole, from the Holy Spirit when he has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This scene is the fulfillment of that promise as the mighty works of God are being proclaimed to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. As the apostles witness and they share and they declare the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the crowds by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the birth narrative of how the gospel reaches the nations right here. But also second, this scene and narrative is also a reversal of the Old Testament historical story of Babel. We don't need to turn there this morning, but let me retell the story for a moment. Back in Genesis chapter 11, we read of the world having one language. And this community attempts to build a, a tower, a great city a self-made economy in order to make a name for themselves and in judgment of their rebellion, God comes down. And what does he do? He disperses them across the earth and he also confuses their languages so that they will not understand one another. But here in Acts 2, we read of God coming down once again, but instead exchanging, exchanging confusion and disunity for clarity and unity as he reverses Babel, not by doing away with diversity of language and diversity of culture, but instead using diverse language to get the gospel to the nations. For God is all about establishing unity in the midst of 
diversity. And that's what we see here. God is bringing a supernatural spirit given unity that transcends culture and class. And he is still doing this today. And friends, he has done all of this and is doing all of this presently through the king's gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, even after all of these amazing things, when all of this phenomena is experienced, Peter stands up and declares something more. He, dis- he declares the king's gospel. And that leads us to point two, the king's gospel. Let's read verses 14 through 36 uh, together. It's going to be a large chunk of scripture, but we can do this. Let's do it. Acts 2, 14 through 36. I want us to see how this is all so beautifully connected. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, this Jesus God raised up. And of all that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here in these verses, we see the text make a fascinating push as Peter stands up and tells the crowds, these, these people aren't drunk for it's, it's mid-morning. And then gives the first apostolic sermon in history with the king's gospel at its very center. Well, I love apple pie. Uh, apple pie, to be exact. And my, my grandmother makes the best apple pie in the world. I know this is probably the most controversial thing I'll say this morning. But why do I love my grandma's apple pie? Well, not only do I love the pie baker, the pie maker, but I also know and love the ingredients and particularly the, the balance of the ingredients. And so what are the ingredients, friends, of Peter's sermon here? What are the ingredients? I want to point out four. Bible, Christ, gospel, response. Bible, Christ, gospel, response. So let's, let's unpack these ingredients. Number one, Bible. This is the first significant ingredient. Peter's sermon is Bible-based. In verses 16 through 21, he quotes Joel 2. In verses 25 through 28, he quotes Psalm 16. In verses 35 or 34 and 35, he quotes Psalm 110. But this sermon is also not just Bible-based, it's also Bible-laced as Peter weaves in the sovereignty of God the covenant that God made with King David that pointed toward the everlasting covenant in Christ, the better king, the better David. For Peter wants the crowds to know in the events that day, and he wants us to know today through the preaching of the word that God was bringing consummation and has brought consummation to anticipation and fulfillment to expectation in and through Christ alone. He has done the work. And this brings us to our second ingredient, Christ. In this sermon, Peter mentions the name of Christ many, many times. And Peter wants us to see that Christ is the point the theme, the culmination of not just his sermon, but also of all of scripture. And Peter wants us to see that he is the apex, the peak, the very tip top of the preacher's message. The pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I love Spurgeon. See, for Peter and for Spurgeon, if there's no Christ, there's no sermon. 
But notice that Peter doesn't just preach the name of Christ here. He preaches the whole, the whole Christ. He preaches his whole redemptive work. He preaches his whole gospel. And that's the next ingredient here in Peter's sermon, the gospel. For Peter, the gospel is the heart. It is central. And we see this so clearly in verses 22 through 24 and then in verses 31 through 36. For if there is no gospel, there is no sermon. And friends, we don't just need the gospel of salvation through Christ crucified and resurrected one time we, or even a couple times. We need it moment by moment every day. This is why this sermon is so applicable to us today. We often think that there are other things to focus on in the church. We kind of have a funny issue in the church that, oh, we've, we've heard the gospel once, we maybe heard it twice, and then we can just kind of move on with our lives. We've got better, bigger and better things to think about, like marriage and parenting and what I want to do with my life and all of these other important things. However, let me say this. We can do none of these things fruitfully or faithfully without the gospel. We need the gospel moment by moment every day for we never get over the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected. For it's been also said that the gospel is not a diving board. The gospel is the very pool that we swim in, amen? Well, the next ingredient of Peter's sermon is a call to respond. This is the next ingredient, response. Peter's sermon is both response-provoking and decision-directed. For he didn't want the thousands of people before him or us today to simply be informed by the word and the spirit and the gospel. He wanted us to be transformed by the word, by the spirit, by the gospel. Why? Because he believed like all true preachers that in the word and the spirit and through the word and the spirit is how hearts are changed. And there's no difference between then and now. And therefore, Peter stood up with conviction, with urgency, with passion, and shared Christ. And preachers have been following through and down through the history, his footsteps. It's been told that David Hume, an 18th century deistic English philosopher who denied historical Christianity was one day found running down the streets of London and he ran into one of his friends and his friend said, David, where are you going? He said, I'm, I'm going to hear the street preacher, George Whitfield. And his friend said, oh, you don't believe, you don't believe that, do you? There's no, there's no way that you believe what that man says. And David said, oh, I, I don't, but he does. He does. Similarly, Richard Baxter, the 17th century Puritan, said that he preached as a dying man 
to dying men and women. Friends, I am a dying man. And you are all dying men and women. And so if you are a non-Christian here this morning, this, this is, this is what I, I need you to hear. This is what I need you to hear. Maybe this is your first time in church, or maybe you've grown up in the church and you've rejected the faith, or maybe you're on the fence about the faith, or maybe you've been coming here for some, some time, but you haven't repented of your sin, those, those ways that you have turned away from God and, and made the kingdom of this world your home. Please hear me. God made you. He made you for himself. And here's the good news of the gospel. It's this, that God came down, that he took on flesh, that he came to this place, that he, he died for, for your sins and for mine in the, in the death of Christ, And then he was resurrected three days later so that all who turned to him in repentance and belief would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel for you, friend, and for me and for all here who have turned from their sin and turned toward Christ in faith. So I pray that, and I hope that you would turn to him today. And if you've been a Christian for some time, I pray once again that you would turn to him today. Well, Peter lands this sermon with verse 36, as we just read a moment ago. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And instead of asking, what does this mean? Like the crowds did back in verse 12, now the multitudes ask, what must we do? As they respond to King Jesus' gift and gospel and by pure and sovereign grace, the new covenant church, Christ's kingdom, the king's gathering is birthed. So let's look here at point three, the king's gathering, verses 37 through 47. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Oh, well, up until, up until this, this point in our passage today, we have seen Christ's continued work through the king's gift, the spirit, through the king's gospel that Peter just preached, we just walked through, and now we see the king's gathering, the result of the spirit and the word. And we see that this gathering that the spirit creates has four unifying and distinguishing marks. I want us to pay attention to these and and end our time here this morning looking at these four points, these four distinguishing marks. They are, number one, that the church is a confessing church, verses 37 through 41. Two, they are a committing church in verses 42 through 44. And they are also a caring church in verses, well, verse 45 And then we see that they are a compelling church in verses 46 through 47. So first, they are a confessing church. That's what we see here in verses 37 through 41, the people's response to both the gift of the spirit and the gospel preached by Peter is that they repent and they believe and they are baptized in that order. Friends, this is the starting line of the Christian life. This is where the race to heaven begins. It begins with confessing sin and looking toward Christ, asking asking God to forgive you of your sins and looking to Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. But we also see here in this confession that there is also the profession, again, of, of belief in Christ alone for salvation. And this is what many of them did, Jew and Gentile, the ones who were once far off, as we read there in verse 39, men and women who repented and believed were baptized and were saved. And the text says that those that did this were added to their number. And the amount, it's 3,000 souls. And this number is significant for it tells us, number, number one, that the church is expanding as we've seen the church move from the apostolic 12 to the 120 back at the beginning of the chapter to the 3,000 now today in the multitude that have responded in faith to the gospel. But also number two, it shows that even here, even here in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and farther down also in verse 47, that there's an understanding of who belonged to Christ and who were members of the church, members of his body. And it's here, friends, that we see the reality that that membership even here existed in the local church. And And it's a membership that's rooted 
rooted in the profession of belief in Christ and the confession of, of sin. For there have always been those that have been marked part of the king's gathering, marked part of Christ's church, and those who are a part of this kingdom of the world, those that are not. There has always been a line drawn between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. There has always been a line between those who commit themselves vertically to Christ and horizontally to one another as they live out love for one another, as they live out that gospel that they confess in commitment to the local church. That's what we see here. Second, they are also a committing church. They're in verses 42 through 44. One of the duties and requirements of the Christian life is fellowship with the saints. That's why you're all here this morning, to fellowship with one another, to spend time in song and word together this morning. Because you recognize that the Christian life is not a solo sport. That the Christian life is meant to be done in community with the church. And that the Christian faith may be personal, yes. But it's never private. It's never private. We see what it looks like to live out the faith here as a, com- as a committed member of the church, that they committed themselves to the, to the right teaching of the apostles, committed themselves to the gospel. They committed themselves to one another in fellowship, we see, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We also see that God is doing wonders and signs through the apostles for his glory and honor and praise here in this chapter. Friends, this is what the early church was about. They were about learning the word, feeding on the word, singing the word, and praying the word. That's what we see here as they commit themselves to one another, commit themselves to Christ. And so what does, what does it look like for you to be committed to EBC? What does it look like to, for you to be a committed member here at this church Well, lifting off from these verses, it looks like committing to gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day, just like we're doing here. Embodied worship is the best worship. It also looks like singing together, praising God together, which requires us to be together in one place, singing. It also looks like serving the church where there is need. It looks like discipleship, meeting one-on-one, sharpening one another, not just one-on-one, but also in groups, doing spiritual good to one another throughout the week, outside of the Sunday morning gathering. It looks like praying together. It may also look like you being a part of of a small group or a home group here at this church. Some of the sweetest moments of fellowship uh, at my Christian life, but also the life down at Henson Church in, in Portland have been opening our home uh, where my wife, Kate, will, will make a meal and we'll just sit together and we'll open the word and we'll encourage one another and we'll talk about what we're learning through 
through what's being preached on Sunday mornings. And we'll talk about books together. And we'll talk about parenting and marriage together. And we'll do all these things. We'll break bread and pray together. Those are the sweetest, some of the sweetest moments that find their lifeblood in the gospel. But also the sweetest moments that find their, their lifeblood that go back to the, what happened on Sunday morning. There's, there's this reaction. There's this, this two for one that's happening in those moments where you get this ongoing fellowship that's based in the fellowship on Sunday morning that we experience together. So I ask, do you have this view of your membership here at EBC? I would encourage you to read through these verses this week and ask yourself, how am I doing these things here at EBC today? How am I doing them this week, this month, this year? Well, we see here in Acts 2 that the church is a confessing church. And we see that they're a committing church. Also, we see that they're a caring church. This is the third mark, the third distinguished mark, distinguishing mark here of the church. They are marked by compassion and care and benevolence and commonality. And this is what biblical care and hospitality looks like. They were using and selling their possessions for the good of others, preferring one another as they loved one another, not, not just caring for the needs of the least of, of those out there, the least, the least out there, but also the least of these within the, within the local body, within the church. The heart of the church has always been a compassionate and caring heart where preferring others means that we're giving up of our finances and our things and our possessions for the sake of others. So I ask you, do you think of your finances and possessions in this way? Do you see your finances and possessions as a gift from God to be stewarded to the glory of Christ and also to be used as, as means to God's ends in this local body? certainly pray that that's the case. May we think of our, of our things as, as simply means of ministry to love one another. That's, that's how we should think of our things. And that's what we're being challenged with this morning from, from Luke's words by the inspiration of the spirit. Well, we see again that they're a confessing church, a committing church and a caring church, but they are also lastly they're a compelling church. This is what we see in verses 46 through 47. Look at the picture Luke paints there. Notice that day by day, week by week, month by month, they are getting together, gathering together, sharing meals with one another with glad and generous hearts, praising and worshiping God together. Brothers and sisters, this local church made up of Christians who have committed themselves to Christ horizontally and to one in, or Christ vertically and to one another horizontally are, are the most compelling community in the world. When we find our unity and love not in party politics or not in our American dream and our, our American standing as citizens, but when we find love and unity in Christ alone, he is the baseline for our fellowship in the church. And so looking at these four C's that kind of mark the church here in Acts 2, do you have this view of the church? 
Do you have this view of, of, of commitment to one another? For this is what authentic Christianity looks like. This is what the king's gathering looks like. May this body of believers, the kingdom of God, here in Edgewood, be a confessing and a committing and a caring and a compelling community, one that displays the gift and the gospel of Christ. Well, in closing, at the beginning of our time together, we read, when the day of Pentecost, Pentecost arrived, the people of God were all together waiting in expectation for the Spirit. And here at the end of the chapter, again, once again, they're all together with glad and generous hearts, praising God. How? By God's grace, through the work of the Spirit, by the preaching of the glorious gospel of Christ. And brothers and sisters, here's the good news. That God is still building his gathering, still building his church today. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminding one another of that. For God is the God of new beginnings. And he is creating and recreating a people, even today, to the glory and honor and praise of Christ, our King. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word that you have not left us alone in this world to make our way on our own, but you have come down, that you have given us your spirit and your word, and through that, we can live lives that are committed to you and committed to one another because of what your son has done, what you have accomplished once and for all through his blood. Father, I pray that you would sustain us, that you would cause us to persevere and that Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, not just now, but forevermore the glory of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.